We're grateful to have you as a listener, and we want to learn more about your listening habits and how we can serve you better. We have a survey running right now and would love to hear from you. It shouldn't take much more than five minutes to complete. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. That's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. When you're done, you can enter a sweepstakes to win a $100 gift card. We really appreciate your help. Thanks so much. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is Leanne Caldwell. I'm an anchor here at Washington Post Live, but also co-author of the Early 202 Newsletter. Joining us today is Republican Governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson. Governor Hutchinson, thanks so much for joining us today. Leanne, it's uh, good to be with you and looking forward to the conversation. And first to our viewers, we also want to hear from you. So if you have any questions for Governor Hutchinson, feel free to tweet us at Post Live. So Governor, again, thanks for joining us. Um, it's been five and a half weeks since uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. As our open mentioned, there was a trigger law in Arkansas that uh, banned abortion in the state, including there are no exceptions for rape or incest. I do want to ask you, in one of those clips, you say that you should think that perhaps there should be those exceptions. So what is the state, what are you able to do to ensure that at some point in the future, those exceptions do exist? Well, time is going to uh, dictate uh, states' responses and experience. And so uh, the legislature fairly recently uh, passed the trigger law overwhelmingly that uh, banned abortion except uh, in the case of the life of the mother. Uh, now that, of course, went into effect after the Supreme Court decision, uh, and that is in effect right now. At the time that uh, was passed, uh, I issued a letter saying I support the additional exceptions of rape and incest, and I could go through the reasons for that, but I issued that letter. People say, well, why didn't you veto the law? Well, in Arkansas, a uh, veto can be overridden by a simple majority vote. And so uh, it was clearly overwhelming uh, consensus on that in the legislature. I've always signed pro-life bills when they come to my desk. Now that uh, the uh, trigger law is in, in effect and that uh, we don't have abortion except in the case of the life of the mother, uh, you're gonna have to look at months and months, perhaps a year of experience before uh, there's any consensus that that should be adjusted if that is the case. And, but we're gonna have experience in Arkansas that, and across the nation that's gonna help shape uh, public opinion, help shape uh, the opinion of the legislators. And so I don't envision that being re, uh, revisited uh, during the time that I have as governor, but I can see that revisited down the road based upon experience, we'll wait and see on that. In the interim, it is important that we make sure that we provide services that are needed. And so we've always in Arkansas, we have in, uh, during my leadership, we've increased the uh, foster care coverage. Uh, we've expanded health care in Arkansas. Arkansas is one of the southern states that have the Medicaid expansion uh, so that we can have better health care uh, resources in our state. And so in, in addition to that, uh, we want to be able to increase our foster care assistance. We want to make sure 
that we have the maternal care. We have an application pending before uh, the Biden administration now to expand maternal he health care in our rural settings. Uh, and so those are steps that we want to take to make sure that the mom, in the event there's an unwanted pregnancy, has the resources that are needed uh, to assist her and help her through that time. Arkansas has a lot of room to do better on some of those issues and taking care of mothers, families, children. The state ranks 48th in the country as far as childhood poverty is concerned. Um, you, you mentioned some things that Arkansas is doing to help mothers and families now that there's probably going to be a lot more children born. What else needs to be done? Is that going to be enough? Well, first of all, you've got to separate those issues a little bit. Arkansas is a southern state. Uh, we've always had uh, challenges in terms of health care. And uh, in, the, if, in the fact that we're 48th or we have low statistics on child uh, health, we need to improve child health. We don't need to have a response that we're going to increase uh, taking the life of the unborn. And so you've got to separate those. And we have continually tried to invest more in rural health care. Uh, again, Arkansas went against the grain. Uh, my predecessor did Medicaid expansion uh, for the reasons that you just indicated, trying to improve our health uh, outcomes in Arkansas. Uh, I continued that as a Republican governor because I knew how important it was. And we shot up with access to health care. We're trying to do more even now, as I said, with our rural hospitals to provide wraparound services for uh, the, the mom going through a, a pregnancy, but also to extend it after that child is born. Uh, so we're doing all of those things and we ob obviously want to increase those healthcare outcomes, but uh, there's challenges that we have to address from eating habits to exercise all of those have been a part of, of a message that we've had in Arkansas to improve health care. Do you anticipate uh, the Arkansas legislature legislating on issues of travel, allowing Arkansas women to travel outside the state to obtain an abortion or perhaps order uh, abortion pills online into Arkansas? Well, you, you have the answer on the first part is absolutely no. Uh, I, uh, we have the freedom of travel in America. And uh, while we don't encourage support uh, traveling out of state to uh, take the life of an unborn child, uh, there's not any prohibition on that. There's no restrictions. And that's the freedom that we have in America. We always have, or have the ability to travel for health care uh, out of state or make the decision to have the health care in state. Uh, in terms of the uh, second part of the uh, question, uh, what was that again? It was about um, it was about access to abortion pills. Well, you know, whenever you look at uh, if it's a contraceptive, everybody has access to contraceptives. There's not any limitation on that. But if you're looking at abortion, again, uh, under the uh, trigger law, that would be uh, outlawed, whether it's a, uh, you know, a medical abortion or whether it's a chemical abortion. And so uh, those would be prohibited, except when the life of the mother uh, is at risk. Is there a way, though, to legislate uh, people or prohibiting people from receiving those in the mail? 
Well, you know, there you have to look at the providers. They're the ones that are responsible. We have to understand that there's nothing that is designed to penalize or punish the woman. That's not part of our law. We don't do that. It's the restrictions are on the providers. And so uh, obviously it's more difficult if they're out of state providers. Uh, that's a uh, legal enforcement issue. Uh, but there's not any effort to do any of those things in Arkansas. Uh, right now, uh, we have the law in place. We expect it to be followed. It is being followed to my knowledge. Uh, there's not any uh, police that's out there uh, knocking on doors, uh, trying to uh, check out things, uh, but uh, we expect the law to be followed like it is in other cases. And uh, if there's a violation of it, you go after the provider uh, obviously, it's more difficult if they're out of state, uh, but that can be investigated just like any other uh, violation of the law. Uh, big picture, Governor, where do you see the debate on abortion access, um, pro-life? Where do you see this moving in the next few years, not only in Arkansas, but across the country? Well, it's always a matter of education first. And I think that's why the pro-life movement has had success is that because of science, because of more knowledge as to the health of the child in the womb and uh, their viability that abortion uh, has been more reduced and you've had uh, a greater acceptance of a pro-life uh, viewpoint. And so now that attention has drawn to it again, I expect, uh, you know, the education to be a very important part of it, uh, and the experience is going to dictate uh, any changes and exceptions. And it's interesting, we're going to learn from states. Uh, states are uh, the laboratory of uh, democracy, uh, and you're seeing states approach this in different way. We're going to learn from their experiences. Uh, legislators are going to get together and share ideas, and and so I see it as something that moves uh, in the next couple of years based upon the experience that we have. Uh, Arkansas right now has a very restrictive uh, abortion policy. Other states will adopt something different. I think we're going to learn from each other uh, and adjustments uh, can be made. So I think the debate will continue. I do not see it as the all in all explosive political issue that it is being made out to be right now. It's always been an important issue to many voters, uh, but there's a broader range of issues that uh, voters decide what candidate they want to support. And I see that continuing. Uh, right now, uh, uh, I think that uh, it's just one of many issues that will be impacting the 2022 election. I wanna change gears a little bit and talk about another issue that uh, the House passed a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and the Senate could take up uh, at some point in the next month, perhaps month and a half, and that is marriage equality, um, uh, ensuring access to same-sex marriage. Where do you stand on that legislation? Do you think that that should be codified at a national level? Well, first of all, it's been accepted because of a Supreme Court ruling that recognized same-sex marriages and said the states could not prohibit that. And so I don't see that changing. And so that means there's really not a necessity of a national law on it. It's, it's just uh, another issue that uh, the court has said is uh, 
a constitutional privilege that uh, individuals have in our country. Uh, in terms of, of my view on this, uh, I believe historically and uh, from my own personal viewpoint that a marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, that is my personal viewpoint, but uh, I've, I accepted very quickly the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I made it clear that we're going to issue the licenses in Arkansas to same-sex couples pursuant to the Supreme Court ruling. And that uh, I see as continuing in the future. I don't see that changing. And, uh, and you know, there's a fear factor as to whether the Supreme Court will reanalyze uh, that previous ruling. I don't expect that. I actually, in the Dobbs case that they decided, they made that very clear that this does not mean that those uh, other issues are going to change. And so uh, that the uh, same-sex marriage is a status quo in America right now. Uh, I don't see that changing uh, any time in the near future. Mm -hmm. And another issue that is that Congress is addressing is this burn pit legislation. Um, this is something that impacts veterans. Uh, the Senate passed and the House passed previously legislation to expand benefits and care for veterans who have been exposed to toxic burn pits, including especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but the Senate voted again last week over a technical issue and 25 Republicans switched their vote from supporting it to opposing it. Your two Arkansas uh, senators, Senator Cotton and Senator Bozeman, are on opposite sides of the issue. Um, Senator Cotton has opposed it throughout the process. It could be voted on again this week. Uh, do you think that it should pass? Is it necessary for veterans in Arkansas to have this legislation to help them who have been exposed to these burn pits? Absolutely. It needs to pass. Uh, the, as you described, a, a technical challenge uh, needs to get fixed, and they need to pass this legislation. It's really critically important for our veterans. Uh, when I was in private practice, I represented veterans with claims for the uh, Veterans uh, uh, Commission, and uh, this needs to be fixed. Uh, they need this relief. Uh, now, you mentioned it as a technical uh, issue. Uh, and actually, I think it was about $400 billion uh, that uh, the Democrats added on uh, at the last minute. And so it made it a much more tough vote. I would, of course, come out in favor of the veterans support and trying to fix that, uh, you know, egregious spending in some other fashion. But uh, I hope and expect uh, the Senate to rectify this, to get this fixed. Let's keep it simple. Let's keep it straightforward. Let's help our veterans and keep everything else out of there. Uh, so I hope that's the outcome, and I'm optimistic that will be, but I certainly support it. Yeah, and to be clear, it, it, it's an accounting measure, how you count the $400 billion, which is pretty much the cost of the legislation, um, but the technical issue is how you account for it and if that money can be spent in the future. Um, you know, you mentioned the 2022 midterm elections a few questions back, so I do want to turn to that. And we'll start with a viewer question who asks about the midterm elections. It's Christopher Morris from Ohio. And he says, do you believe that the recent Dobbs decision is going to energize the left and increase Democratic voter turnout in most of the battleground states in November. What do you think? You know, I haven't seen a great deal of indication of that. I've followed some of the polling 
And right now, the Republicans are more motivated to vote in uh, November and energized than the Democrat, but there's been some uh, increase in the Democrat uh, intensity level. Uh, so uh, I don't see it ha as having the impact that the Democrats are hoping for. Uh, it certainly will, uh, you know, in some circles, but uh, they were probably already energized. Uh, and so, you know, you look, I don't see it much different in past elections that for some, the pro-life issue or the pro-choice issue has been the defining issue for them to determine their vote. So it will be for some, uh, but I think the intensity level this year is going to be based upon uh, their rising cost of, of food and gasoline. It's going to be about the economy. It's going to be about uh, the recession that I'm worried about. It's actually going to start costing jobs uh, in the uh, coming months. Those are the worries that uh, are going to really decide the vast majority of uh, voters' uh, decision, and it's going to uh, impact the intensity level. Something that has really stuck out to me in a recent spate of polling is that so many people, Republicans and Democrats both, think that the country is moving in the wrong direction. Now, Republicans will say that the reason is because of the economy. Um, Democrats, Republican analysts, I should say, that that polling suggests that it's because of the economy. Democratic analysts and poll watchers sometimes say that that is perhaps, of course, fears about the economy, but other issues, including um, things like abortion, things about uh, you know mass um, you know mass shootings in this country. What do you sense beyond the economy? You know, is really stressing voters out at this point. Well, if you look on the Democratic side, what they're upset about are some Supreme Court decisions. Uh, if you look at uh, what's motivating Republicans, uh, it is violent crime uh, in our major cities. Uh, it is uh, the border security issues. Uh, it is our respect uh, abroad uh, and our support of the military. If you look at independence, uh, I think it is the economy uh, that drives them. I do believe uh, the support of law enforcement, I think the Democrats realize a serious error was made in their discussion of defunding the police and that lack of support for our law enforcement has cost us in terms of, of what's happening in our, in our urban areas particularly, but violent crime increases across uh, the country. Uh, and you know, even though you live in a rural area, we like to, to visit Chicago. We like to go to New York. We, this is a, a, all of America and we value the safety in those streets. And that is a highly motivating factor for uh, Republicans and in independents as we go to the polls this year. Uh, so there's a vast uh, range of, of concerns that are out there. Uh, and uh, one of them though, as I mentioned, is the border security issues. And, and this is uh, something that whenever you see uh, the mayor of Washington, D.C., asking for National Guard support because of, of undocumented immigrants coming into that city and, and frustrating their uh, human services that they uh, need to provide. Uh, this is an issue that weighs on America that has to be addressed, and uh, that's going to motivate voters uh, in the fall. You are one of the Republicans who have been critical of Donald Trump. Um, 
You said that he has disqualified himself as a 2024 presidential candidate uh, because of January 6th. Do you still stand by that? I do stand by that. I don't drive that message every day, but I honestly answer questions when I'm asked. And so, yes, I stand by that. I believe that. What's important to me is that uh, we need to talk about 2024 after the election this fall. Now, I know that uh, the timeline is accelerating and pre former President Trump is a reason for that. He's out there talking about 2024 constantly. Uh, and whenever he does that, that becomes, and he becomes the issue in this year's election. And it's not good for Republican candidates if Trump is the issue. Uh, we need to be talking about our solutions and our philosophy of, of uh, reduced government and lower taxes, less regulation and driving our economy forward and controlling spending. Uh, those are issues and solutions that we offer that are critically important, the rule of law and supporting law enforcement. If we get sidetracked on a personality that is as divisive as uh, Donald Trump, then that does not uh, bode well for the outcome in November. We're gonna do well, I have no doubt about that, but uh, we lose ground whenever Donald Trump becomes the issue. Do you think that the party needs to move beyond Donald Trump? You know, it, it's, it's hard whenever you have such a, a visible former president that's out there holding campaign rallies. He becomes a topic and that's probably what he loves. Uh, but in terms of the grassroots of our party, he's got a significant following and uh, any candidate that wants to be president, president has to be able to uh, identify with the issues that uh, Donald Trump is able to drive. I mean, these are real concerns, ones I just articulated uh, from a conservative message on crime and, and uh, inflation. Uh, he's talking about those same things. And so we're all on the same page in terms of the major issues, but he distracts its distracts uh, the voters over to himself, and it becomes about him uh, versus the issues uh, and the problem solving that we need to focus on. And that's what our candidates, if we're gonna win gubernatorial races, if we're gonna win Senate races and congressional races, we've gotta talk about solutions, problem solving, and optimism about our future. That's what voters will respond to. It can't be about the past and uh, dwelling about uh, hurt feelings in the past. Have you been watching the January 6th Select Committee hearings? I have. Uh, I've what, uh, been in tune to the majority of them. Well, uh, I think they've had an impact. Uh, you know, whenever you see uh, Republican staffers that work in the White House that are doing the country's work and they come in and they talk about uh, a president that is disengaged in terms of, of uh, calling out the National Guard, uh, the lack of action in addressing the rioting at the uh, Capitol. Uh, this is, uh, should be a concern of every American that uh, we had a president during that time that uh, allowed uh, that to go on and threatened uh, the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, in terms of the hearings, it's just emphasizing those facts. I, I don't see how the January 6th hearings themselves are making the case against the president. 
that's a very high burden of proof. I think uh, the Attorney General's got a tough call there, but I have not seen uh, the uh, silver, well, I haven't seen uh, the actual case being presented effectively in terms of criminal conduct on the president. I think they've made the case that he was irresponsible, he was derelict in his duties, but it's had an impact. Uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Liz Cheney, the vice chair of that committee, is could very well lose her reelection in a couple of weeks and against a more conservative primary opponent who is backed by Donald Trump. What does it say of the Republican Party if people like Liz Cheney lose because of their stance um, on January 6th? And also, we're going to see more tests of other Republicans in the coming weeks of uh, who voted to impeach Donald Trump because of January 6th. So same question. What does it say of the Republican Party if people like this can't win in a Republican primary? Well, I think you've had, uh, you know, from the Secretary of State in Georgia that won after he uh, took a stand against Trump's pressure to uh, change the election results. You've seen uh, Brian Kemp, who uh, President Trump did not support, win. And so you have mixed results out there across the country. But to me, uh, it shows that we have a Republican Party uh, that is in transition. Uh, we have a Republican Party that's having an internal debate, uh, and those are always painful. Uh, we also see that uh, if we're going to have candidates that win, uh, we can't be simply talking about the last election. Uh, and, you know, Liz Cheney's done a, an amazing job in terms of taking a courageous stand, uh, uh, co-chairing or vice chair of that committee, but it's a tremendous political cost because uh, her electorate uh, wants her back there talking about uh, the rising costs of fuel and uh, the challenges that they have. Uh, and so, uh, you know, every candidate cannot be so focused on the past that you're not addressing those issues. And I think she's paying a price for that. Mm -hmm. You are term limited, so you are not able to run for re-election. Uh, you also just passed on your chair, chairmanship of the, uh, the National Governors Association to uh, um, uh, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy. So you all have talked about bipartisanship in those roles. Do, would you say that it's easier as a governor to work in a bipartisan way than perhaps in Congress? No, you haven't served in Congress, but you're, you're, you're very involved in politics. Well, actually, I did serve in Congress. Right, <laughs> actually, in Congress. before you were governor as a member, not yes. a senator, yes. <laughs> uh, that's right. And so uh, I've had that experience, and uh, perhaps, but I remember in Congress, uh, we probably had the last uh, bipartisan uh, uh, training sessions and uh, conferences when we, Democrats, Republicans, got together. And uh, so the partisanship has increased over the years uh, in, in Congress, and it's made them uh, less effective in terms of the ability to get things done. You know, as governors, we have the pressure of getting things done every day, of solving problems, uh, hitting the issues, and so it forces us to find solutions, and whenever you have to find solutions and take action, that uh, brings people together. Uh, there's plenty of differences, but I think the National Governor Association is one of the last bastions of bipartisanship that 
has proven to be effective. And you have to pick your issues. You know, we're not going to agree, and we uh, on on uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, too big a difference is there. But we can share information. Uh, but we can work on on infrastructure. We worked on the Chips Act together. Uh, some of these bipartisan bills that needed governor support, and our message uh, made a difference. So. Uh, it's been a great experience for me, uh, and it reflects uh, my view that while there's serious fights in Washington, uh, we still need to get things done. And if that takes crossing the aisle and and uh, working together, then uh, that's that's my cup of tea. That's what America needs to do, and that's what America wants to see. And Governor, last question: uh, You have spent nearly 40 years in public service. Um, as I mentioned before, you are term limited. So what are your plans next? Do you have any uh, ambitions to run for president in 2024? Well, as I sort of made the point, uh, it's really critical that uh, we save that till after uh, November of this year. And so uh, obviously it's, uh, I'm thinking about it, uh, but uh, not going to be have any decision until uh, next January. Uh, we're going to focus on this year, uh, but 2024 is is so critical in terms of shaping the Republican Party. And so whether it's as a candidate or whether it's in some other role, I certainly want to be a voice. And this is an important point. Uh, somehow people think that if you're not 100% pure behind uh, Donald Trump, then somehow you're a moderate. My record is as conservative as anyone in the United States of America, uh, but I am able to reach across the aisle to help and work to get things done. And so it's effective message. But I think the test in 2024, can a conservative that has a uh, more optimistic view of America, uh, that doesn't uh, resort to uh, personal grievances, can that person win and that's what I want to be able to support uh, in uh, the fight uh, for 2024. Governor Hutchinson, that sounds like a definite maybe. So we will be watching. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.